You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. One of us.net and all of the shows on it are hundred percent subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to one of us.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Things must continue on. The show must go on. And here we are with digital noise. Why am I talking like some weird? I don't like, know. I was wondering where you were going with that bit. It went somewhere weird. I, I sound like, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I sound like some weird theater impresario from like Moulin Rouge or something, you know? Like, and now the show must begin. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I'm just sitting here enjoying my gin and having a good old time. So you, you go right ahead. Do your cold open, man. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Yeah, right. Uh, all right, Jenny. Um, uh, I am Chris. I am Aaron. And we are here to do digital noise. Yes. As is our want. And it's a little um, bit of a different one, too, this time. You are way up in the frozen north of Austin. And I, I am, am down in the warm tropical south. That is that is warm tropical. Wait, what? It's super hot up here. <laughs> well, this is Texas. It's hot everywhere, about. but fuck it, man. Well, let's just like pretend we're on opposite ends of the country. We're not just like twenty minutes away from each other. It's like the well. It's, it, let's be honest. Austin is pretty big, and where you are, it's more like an hour away. Yeah. From each other. <laughs> so, if our audience can't tell, uh, we are all self quarantined right now because. Uh, well, we're socially responsible. I have family that I don't want to get sick. And Chris, I yeah. imagine you and your wife don't want to get sick either. No, uh, we were very, we figured out early on the safest thing to do was to take advantage of the technology that was out there that I have historically hated using. Yes, I'm an old guy. I just turned 50 for the record. There's an Amazon wish list connected to my who are the us uh page just for the record happy birthday uh, everyone out there buy him some good shit he deserves it <laughs> but i i just never i like seeing people in person so i've always resisted this online thing god bless justin zarian who does it entirely with people on here with screener squad and i i on the prize and things like that but i'm like oh i I'm very resistant towards doing it. Yes, that's me being a curmudgeon, but here we are. And knowing that this is a capacity that we can do and knowing that, like, I got to get over that because I can't invite people to my house when I know it's not really a safe space. Nowhere is a safe space for people to gather. So uh, for now... We're doing all our recordings online, including digital noise, which I don't think is going to be really a problem. No, no. It's a, uh, this is the modern era. I do most of my work uh, through voice chat or online meetings anyways. And hell, I've been working from home for like three weeks already. So this is old hat for me. Well, there you go. There we go. And I have I have been too, just not like this. This is literally my first one of these. Ooh. So if I seem awkward, I, I, I apologize. I get to pop Chris's cherry. Yay! Well, I mean, not 
Not for all time, but like since this started. It's been quite some time. This is all time. I'm the first person you've ever done an online recording with. Just admit it, Chris. Don't lie to the people. Okay, you're the best I've ever had. Damn straight I am. Oh my God. Is that blood? (laughs) Oh, Oh. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's do what we came here to do. Indeed, indeed. And talk about movies. Uh, We're going to start off with 21 Bridges, a film that I was actually mildly excited to see online because uh, this was being produced by the Russo brothers, who obviously, after coming from television, going to community, being big, like directing some of the best episodes of community, moved on from there, of all places, to Marvel and became arguably the greatest directors in the entire oeuvre of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, like, uh, it's interesting. There are people who have made movies that I feel like were better directed than them, specifically. But I also think that they've done the best job of kind of pushing that Marvel story forward in a cohesive way. Like, between the, the writing, their directing, everything combined. Their consistency has been yeah. impressive. But this is not directed by them. It is merely produced by them. It's actually directed by a guy named Brian Kirk, an Irish guy who's done a lot of television show stuff and uh, of things I like, like Game of Thrones and The Riches and The Tudors. Uh, but And it stars uh, Chadwick Boseman, who, come on, man, who doesn't like Chadwick Boseman? He's, he played Black Panther in the Marvel yeah. Universe, amongst many other things. James Brown and Get On Up. And I'm like, okay, everything here sounds pretty cool. Uh, the idea is is that there is uh, two small time criminals played by Stephen James and Taylor yeah, Kitsch, which Stephen James and not Anthony Mackie, which I thought all the way up until he took his mask off in this movie that it was him. Yeah, really? I thought it was Anthony Mackie in all the trailers, and even when I was watching the movie, up until they finally demasked, and it kind of threw me for a loop. <laughs> so they have broken into a winery, like a wine bar. And you're like, who the hell goes through all this organization to, to like steal stuff from a wine bar? But it's because they know that it's a front for someone for Coke. And they get in there and they're like, okay, let's get the Coke. And they realize it's like 50 times the Coke they were expecting. Yeah, they're, they're wanting like three keys and there's something yeah. like 300, which yeah, just, oh my God. And, and right away they yeah. know oh my God, we've kind of fucked up. And they immediately do a good job of showing the difference in the characters because one of them is, no, we need to walk away. This is not what we signed up for. And the other one, of course, why not? Let's make some money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like uh, It's, uh, of course, uh, uh, it's Taylor Kitsch who's, is the one who's like the... Uh, the uh, He's the hot uh, is the hothead who's like, yeah, and they have a relationship that deals with going like back to military in Iraq. And like Stephen James's character is like, was the younger brother of, uh, of the guy that Taylor Kitsch was in the Iraq war with. It's weird to me to think Taylor Kitsch playing the older character. Yeah, I know. Same, same here. But yeah. And so as they're in the middle of this robbery, the police show up and they straight up fucking murder them. And it goes into one of the actually a really well shot and intense brutal action sequence where they fight their way out of this wine bar with their methodical, well-trained soldier selves or soldier skills. And they end up killing, I think, eight police officers and they're on the run. 
And yes. the Chadwick Boseman plays a character who he is known as the guy who'll pull a gun because he's killed nine people in a decade. Everyone thinks he's a hothead who just will shoot anyone at the drop of a hat. Um, when really he's more of a, I believe in the idea of the police and every shooting I've had was justified. They were just bad situations I've been in. He's very yeah, much driven by the hot, death of his father. They look at him as a hothead, but in some level, he's kind of a by-the-book guy. Yeah. He's just a guy who's been in some seriously intense situations. And when he's brought into this situation, which is all about like all these cops getting murdered by an unknown entity, he orders, which I can't imagine is something that would happen even under this circumstance in real life, but every single bridge to Manhattan be closed. Yes, so the guys all 21 leave. bridges, which is the only time they mention it. Uh, and he's given an, an five hours to catch them, which, by the way, I think would have made a better title than 21 Bridges because the bridges don't really play into anything except no. the fact that they're closed. Right. So. So oh. it, it, it's a chase thing with like, OK, so one of the guys is more bad than the other. And some it's very clear early on that there's some bad cops as well. And I think what you have here is is a film we've seen things like it before. Hell, we've reviewed things like yep. it before. Uh, Black and Blue was one that we talked about, I think. I don't know if it was you and me. It, it was me and you. Although I will say I think this is one of the better ones. And plus, this is a kind of movie that we don't see a lot anymore. It's a low to mid-budget, just kind of mid-grade action film. That's like we, we used to see a ton of these in the 90s. And then as CG became a lot more prevalent and budget creep kind of happened, this is the kind of movie that we haven't seen in quite a while, which is just like it's a simple little cop thriller action movie. Um, but I, I will say it has two fundamental problems for me that kind of kept this movie from being more than okay. Uh, the first is I, I'm convinced it should have been called Five Hours instead of 21 Bridges. But <laughs> You're um, sticking by them. The second, I think it follows the wrong main characters. So Chadwick Boseman, you know, he's, he's the star in the movie. He is the main character. He's the one we start with, we end with. But he doesn't really have an arc. Uh, he kind of comes in and he is the same guy he is in the beginning as he is in the end. Uh, most of what makes him special is that idea that everyone assumes he's one thing when really he's the exact other. He's the, he's the by the book guy, the opposite. Um, I think it would have been a lot more interesting if the criminals were the main characters because they're the ones who are going through the, the major events uh, you know, they went in thinking this was a small time thing. It's bigger than they, they know. Then they're in over their head. They're being chased for murder. And their story was the interesting one. I think the movie would have been a lot better if we stuck with them and then Chadwick Boseman's character just kind of came in and out as the B plot uh, instead of the flip. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. There's a whole thing of like, he doesn't, he starts reaching a point where he, because it, as a viewer, you're, it's clear early on, okay, clearly the cops are involved in this yeah. at some level, but how many cops and who? And the movie doesn't really have any surprises on that level. Like, there are other characters here, uh, actors like Sienna Miller, J.K. Uh, Simmons, uh, a variety of other people that you recognize. Uh, Alexander Siddig comes in one point, not as a cop, but as a sort of, like, broker-type uh, criminal character. It's always nice to see him in a movie. Oh, I love it him. It makes me happy. I wish, it's I like wish they gave him more shots. 
I wish they gave him more chances. Agreed. He, I think he's a truly great actor. And he only ever gets little roles like this, like in and out. Yeah. But uh, um, I don't think there's a lot of surprises here. And that's one of the biggest problems. It is an old school, like, cop film. But it's kind of like I wanted them to choose a perspective. Because it's not exciting, it's not an exciting film, first off. Like, that first shootout is pretty exciting, but overall, it's kind of okay, because it doesn't choose the perspective. It spends half its time with Chadwick Boseman and half its time with the with the, the criminals, and it's undecided about who's right or wrong, but it doesn't even get too deep into that on an ethical level. This is a mediocre script, first off. It never takes any time to really have anything interesting artistically to say and i mean that like aesthetically like there's no line there's not a single line in this movie you'd go that was a good line yeah it it doesn't really take a stand and honestly though i think you hit the nail on the head because i think brian kirk did a pretty good job directing this when there is action it's violent and visceral and intense and interesting but there's not a lot of that in the movie. It's not an action film. It's more of a thriller. And it, you yeah. can tell that he's trying his best to make this into a good movie. I would be interested in other stuff Brian Kirk does from now on. Like, sure. I, I think this is a great movie to kind of show, like, yeah, this guy could do something good with a really great script. But as it is, this is okay. Yep. It's okay. Well, uh, and I will say there are about three minutes of deleted scenes here uh, and that's and then audio commentary by the director and the editor but that's about it uh let's move on to the and i was super excited to get this and boy what great timing even though it wasn't intended when they sent this out a quiet place yeah i'll have you know i'm actually disappointed in the timing of this uh, because You're disappointed, yeah, in the timing. Because you got this movie the day I came to pick up the stack, and so I just got to rewatch <laughs> A Quiet Place. I didn't get to watch the 4K version of it. You... Aww. <laughs> So sad. Uh, you know you're going to borrow it from me anyway just to watch it again. Yeah, I, I am. I am. I am. You just... All right. So those who don't know, Aaron just got a 4K player. And so now he's all excited. He was in my house like, what 4K things do you have? Give them... Yeah, I know. Just like, give me anything. I don't care. I, I want to see what 4K is like. <laughs> Out of curiosity of the stuff I loaned you, what did you love? Um, I... So I thought the Joker transfer was great. I thought... Um. Oh gosh, Gemini Man surprised me how much I was okay with the the uh, high frame rate, except for when they got into a car chase when it looked like they hit fast forward on the recording and it just did mm-hmm. not work. Um, and then uh, Doctor Sleep was amazing. That was that was my jam. But that was like my favorite movie of last year. So that was yeah. Uh, you were gonna say that? Yeah, I was. Those. But I also I bought Blade Runner twenty forty nine and Apocalypse Now, and I have no son next week. My parents might take care of him for a little bit um, since we've all been isolated for weeks and we're relatively safe that we can exchange presences and so i'm going to watch apocalypse now and blade runner 2049 and my huge tv with volume cranked i'm excited but quiet place both of which are essential if i had to tell someone one movie to get to show off your 4k it's the apocalypse now one they put out recently it's great but so a quiet place which 
funnily enough, okay, a quiet I actually uh, reviewed a for this site when it was originally released on Blu-ray. Oh, it is the movie. Really? It, I did. It's the movie that made me cry so hard that my wife upstairs asked me to keep it down, and I was downstairs. <laughs> You're sobbing? I was, Your wife came and asked you to stop sobbing. No, no. So I got a text of, hey, honey, could you keep it down? When I was like, <laughs> like oh, full Jesus. on, I'd be crying. It's like she's not <laughs> complaining about the film because there's almost no sound. No, no, it was it's me. very quiet. <laughs> and that being said, even though this 4K version, uh, like, it is an upgrade. There's no question it's a little bit better on the 4K. It's, it's not wildly like oh that's the thing that's going to make you notice but i will say that like i thought that the audio is pretty damn good even though it's so quiet for a lot of it it is a bit of an upgrade here from the previous one uh it manages to make those moments where it does get loud that much more effective the the balance of not having to adjust your volume on your set to hear when things are being quiet is better balanced uh I think this is a really good, uh, a solid release of it. There is a Steelbook version of this as well that's out there, which is the one that I have. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Bragging. Bastard. (laughs) But this movie John Krasinski directed, uh, this is my second time watching it because I didn't watch it again when we did the Blu-ray because I, I, like, it was not that far after the theatrical release. So I was like, oh, I remember this very clearly. But getting to watch it again about, like, post-apocalyptic world without seeing the apocalypse happen where there's blind alien creatures who have super advanced senses of hearing. So everyone has to be very, very quiet or they will come out and immediately fucking kill you. And this family that's figured out various strategies to survive is deeply affecting. Yes. Uh, And, and not just because of the monster uh, effects, which are really good. It's a cool design monster. Uh, not just because of the premise, because they created a convincing family unit here and the love and the problems they have. Uh, trying to get all that across, all their emotions across that they have, especially dealing with the death of the youngest son due to just a mistake that happens at the beginning of the film that's a startling <laughs> intro to the movie. Yeah, that alone broke me because I... This movie came out not that long after my son was born. My son was like six months old when this hit theaters. So this movie hurts me front to back. (laughs) Oh, it's a emotionally upsetting film, even for those of us who have chosen not to ruin the world by having children. (laughs) But (laughs) just fucking with you. Sorry. No, no, no. No, I'm an asshole. We all know this. The the movie... I'm not going to go too much into it because, like, we, we've talked about it previously. It's a phenomenal movie. Uh, John Krasinski shows himself to not only be a very competent director right out of the gate, but also a phenomenal writer. Uh, like, this is a one of the best of the year movies. This is one of the best all-time horror movies. It's unique. It's special. The only thing that bugged me then and it bugs me still is there is a linchpin item which is a nail in a staircase that kind of is that always drives me crazy because nails don't work that way that's not how staircases are built and it bugs me because like everything else in the movie 
is so well thought out and so nuanced and accurate and patient. And you can tell they slaved over that script to get all that right. And that's the only part where you can tell they went, eh, fuck it, just have them step on a nail. No, it's it's uh, kind of a the one cheap moment in the film that they keep, even after someone has the effect that you expect from the nail, they still keep playing on the, but what if they step on the nail yep. thing? And I'm like, this family that has overthought, not overthought, and the, cir- the circumstances have been extremely thoughtful about every detail, couldn't notice four inches of nail sticking out of the steps. Yeah. Is like, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, that's weird. Yeah, it, it's weird it's for the, me to believe. It is the only flaw in what is almost a perfect film. And you okay. know, if the sequel is about to come out, uh, which I will probably have to see because I loved the first one, but I'm dreading yeah. it. <laughs> I, I will say that I still, and I understand all the arguments, and I've read lots of essays on it back and forth because it bothers me because I love this film so much. The idea of why would you fucking have another child under this circumstance? Uh, right, you know why? You're, uh, you're a moron. You don't. There are people have heard even be as harsh as you. Honestly, don't deserve to live. So if, if that was your decision, and I'm like, that's not entirely unfair. So like a couple of things I'm going to say. Uh, one, uh, this is the post-apocalypse. Birth control is not the easiest thing to get in the world. Uh, two, you know, like at a certain point from a scientific standpoint you have to repopulate the the species yes and, but you and, do that after you figure out how to beat the bad guys from another point <laughs> man like babies don't babies don't always come when you expect them to you know my second daughter was uh, my wife got pregnant about 9 months sooner than we expected uh, her to and so like that was definitely a little bit of an unplanned pregnancy and that happens I actually thought it was refreshing that, that, that this is something that they're having to deal with in the post-apocalypse because you rarely see that happen. I just felt like it would have been nice to throw in something to say, oops, you know what? we didn't mean to do this. I'll give you that. But, I'll, but I'll give happened. you that. Either it would have been nice to have either a line of it being a, well, we're pregnant and we can't exactly abort the baby because there's no doctors anywhere, or... You know what? No, we are so secure in our facility that we think we can do this, and we're it's ready to have that, a child. It's something that bugged me through the whole film, and it bugged me through the whole film the second time as well, where I'm like, just one line of dialogue would have fixed this. We were like, we didn't mean for this to happen, but here we are. Yeah, I'm a sappy no. dad. It didn't bother me at all. <laughs> all right, let's move on to some not as anywhere near as great horror films. Uh, but I would argue still at least mildly worth watching. Uh, Mill Creek yeah, okay. has put out a combination, oh boy, combination disc for some reason of two films that have no relation to each other on any level. Rosewood Lane and White Noise 2, The Light. Yeah. Okay. So let me say, if you're more like less discerning horror viewer, and I certainly don't mean that in a, in a, uh, condescending way. I mean, there are those people like, I just like good horror film. I think you're going to like both these movies just fine. Uh, I think you're both, you're going to go with both. I'm like, yeah, they're, they're fun. I had a good time. I don't see what your problems were. So now let's talk to people who are more discerning viewers. We're going to start with Rose, Rosewood Lane, which first off is made by Victor Salva. Yeah. Uh, Vic, Victor Salva, a American filmmaker. The Wikipedia entry starts with 
is an American filmmaker and convicted sex offender. Yeah. So, so the, the the short version, because I don't want to go too far into it, since it's fucking Rosewood Lane that we're talking about. Uh, Victor Salva has been making movies his whole life. Uh, a while back in the mid '90s, he was making movies and he molested and sexually assaulted his male lead and videotaped it. Went to jail for it for a couple of years. Got out and has questionably um move past it his movies are awfully yeah. fetishistic about young boys um yeah. but uh, like it, he's one of those guys where you start asking that question of at what point have you paid your debt to society uh, i've enjoyed one of his movies kind of maybe two uh, before I knew everything that was go- uh, going on with him, and everything else I've ever seen that he's made has been, at best, okay. Uh, I liked okay the Jeepers Creepers films, the first two. The, those are the first one. two. The The first one I like, the second one is flawed, but I enjoy it. But that didn't change the fact that, like, this guy... Is a creep. And I went to... I, I fell down kind of a deep hole here of, like, looking into this going... Wow, he really doesn't have any remorse for his actions, does he? Like, this is 2011 when this comes out. And I'm like, there's a lot of stuff here that you're like, ooh, this is fucking creepy considering the source that it comes from. Yeah. Anyway, let's just, outside of that and forgetting the fact that a lot of people do not want to see anything Victor Selva ever does. Which and I can't blame fair. him. Yeah. Uh, it follows Rose McGowan. She is a radio doctor. A radio talk show psychiatrist. Yeah. Which is to say... She's Dr. Laura. Not really. Not really a psychiatrist. No. She's... Her her uh, alcoholic father, she had a complicated relationship with dyes. So she has to come back home. She's the only kid. She's there. Uh, and uh, is cleaning up a shit. And everyone is like, oh, the paper boy is psycho. Stay away from him. Okay. This movie goes so quickly into this... Whole like oh oh don't no 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 oh. just don't have anything to do with the paper boy who right off the bat is like clearly like this weird sociopath and I, I'm like huh yeah it's ten minutes in ten minutes in and they're like oh yeah he's gonna kill you yeah I, just like and then he starts calling into her show and reciting nursery rhymes and I'm not entirely sure what this what the connection is here it's like. Is this a supernatural type thing? I mean, the movie wants you to kind of think it's a supernatural type thing, but it's not. It's a super dumb twist at the end. Yeah. One of those, like, this is the laziest twist you possibly could have come up with to sell this thing that still... I mean, this movie has one really cool scene in it where she thinks she's found where he lives and she goes to the house of the people and forces her way in. It's like, your child is a psychotic. He's fucked up. He's stalking me. And then it turns out it's not the right. Yeah. It's like some random goth kid. Like, yeah. I was like, that's pretty funny. Like I'll I'll admit, like I thought, I thought the director did a decent job at building some suspense and horror in quite a few sequences. Like he was good with the visuals. He was decent in handling the cinematography, but, and he wrote the movie too, by the way, Uh, which I mentioned because this is a shit script, front to back. Um, it makes no sense. The kills are random, although kind of entertaining. And the yeah, the twist at the end just does not work. 
it sets it up as a twist, but it doesn't really pay off anything we've set up before. And it just comes out of left field. And it also means nothing. It, it basically makes it to where the movie just ends, like, the equivalent of at the end of the second act. And you're going like, okay, well, I guess this is the end of the movie now. Cool, credits roll. It would, I'm kind of surprising that Rose McGowan even did this movie. She's usually very vocal about who she will and won't work with. And she's usually pretty big about working with not skis bags. So really because she worked with Richard, uh, uh Robert Rodriguez extensively and Is he a skis he's bag? pretty much a straight up skis. Oh, bag, I didn't so. know that. I just remember yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, damn. No, she dated him. So it was okay. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, th- yeah. this is, this is a, B, this is a Z grade, no, not a Z grade. This is just a mid-level. Watch it on Showtime at like midnight when you're drunk and you don't really care kind of horror movie. Yeah. I, I can't say anyone should seek this out. Yep. And uh, the th- I think it was actually better than what we're going to talk about next. Oh, see, I'm the other way. Because White Noise, The Light, I was actually like, I kind of like this in a weird sort of, I think it's a, a bad movie that has stuff I like about it. Uh, like, okay, it's, it's a that. sequel to the t- 2005 film White Noise that starred Michael Keaton, which I also was a little bit forgiving of more than I, I like ghost stuff. I've been famous for this. So, I'm like a little bit more forgiving of ghost movies, uh, which uh, the title White Noise refers to electronic voice phenomenon, which is the idea is that you can record like set a recorder in a room and that you can pick up ghosts talking and what have you. Now, neither one of these movies is really on the whole about white noise. That's just a start off to where it goes to. Uh, this movie is, is only kind of a sequel. I mean, it's, it's, it's a standalone, like this could be white noise one, but here's the good news. It stars Nathan Fillion and Katie Sackoff. love and Katie Sackoff two geek, like, Legends, and that's everything that's good about the movie. Uh, um, okay, I, I have to admit, I was hate messaging this movie uh, to my you friend were. the whole time I was watching it because to I, me, you sent me messages. Yeah, 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 you got like two. I, I had a friend who I was laying out the whole plot, and, and my main issue with the movie. So, like, basically, what happens in this movie is Nathan, and I want to go into this because. I have a fundamental problem with the structure of this film, and I think it sets up something that doesn't work. Uh, but so Nathan Fillion is at the diner with his wife and his kid. His wife is acting weird, and some random guy walks in, shoots his son, shoots his wife, blows his own head off after saying, I'm sorry. And that is the opening of the movie. And so we quickly fast forward to Nathan Fillion trying to deal with the loss of his entire family and also trying to figure out, like, how do I move on? It's my fault. Like, I should have done something. Um, And before long, he can't handle it anymore. And he tries to commit suicide. And this is, by the way, all in the first 15 minutes of the movie. And so he kills, he tries to kill himself. He doesn't succeed. He gets brought back in a hospital by Katie Sackhoff as a nurse. And then he starts seeing ghosts in the white noise. More specifically, he starts seeing flashes of light and weird effects when he's near someone who is about to die. And so he gets it in his mind that he is going to start saving these people. He's going to be a superhero. Yeah, he's going to be a superhero. And... 
before long, he starts noticing that all the people he saved die horribly three days later and, in fact, take other people out with you. Which gets to kind of one of the cruxes of the movie, which I've been debating whether or not to go into it because it is kind of a spoiler. But the movie gets into the idea of death's design. And if you save someone, that has repercussions that you don't expect. And it gets very much into, like, the devil playing with the fates of life. But the the problem that I had is that it, it gets to a point where he's having to make up for saving people. Because if he doesn't, these bad things will happen. But by the very nature of these bad things happening, it means that there was no plan because those Bad things would never have happened if they had not tried to save someone and then left them alive who was intending to die. So who fucking cares if you save someone's life because there's no plan? So who's pissed off? Like It just it bothered the shit out of me the whole way through the movie, and I couldn't get past it. <laughs> All right, so my take on it is this is a great idea. This guy who goes, oh, shit, I have this new ability because of this. Learning to accept it, figuring out how he can save people. I was like, I'm kind of, at this point in the film, I'm like, I'm kind of into this. I love the idea I of was this too. guy doing this. Which the previous film briefly explored, very briefly. Uh, this film, he becomes clear early on with a guy who previously had been in this position. Uh, like, oh, had left lots of, like, crazy person notes. Oh, shit. They, uh... In fact, and leading up to the person who killed his actual family. Oh, if you don't stop this, it's just going to get worse and worse. You cannot save people this way. I hate that answer. And I feel like this movie needed a better way to answer the problem. Agreed. And that that's the biggest problem because there was a way to sell this and do this. This movie did not figure it out. I think the third act... You just kind of sit there going, God damn it, there's got to be a way to make this work. But you're just kind of falling back on a bunch of cheap tropes. And literally, at the end, there's a thing of like hero ghost syndrome. Oh, that so bad. I, I was like, oh, please, yeah. come on. So you and I had the same problems. It's just pissed me off more. Because that whole third act, as they really started getting into the details... As they explained it, I got progressively more and more angry because of the logic flaw that they never answered for me. Yeah. <laughs> so by the end of it, I was just like, man, fuck you, movie. No, that's fair. Um, I, I, I found I liked it a little bit better than the first one, as a lot of critics did, weirdly to my surprise, who thought this was better than the original. You know, I, which I, I also kind of went like, eh, it's not that bad. But I rem- once again, I remember liking the first one better, but... I saw it in theaters with my wife before we were married, and I remember it has Michael Keaton and ghosts in it, and that's about it. (laughs) Clearly, it made an impact on my life. So we've talked about a good horror film, a really good horror film. We've talked about two not-so-good horror films. They're bad. Let's talk about, like, let's go to another country. Let's go to Japan and talk about One Missed Call. Oh, my gosh. I'm just going to say this right now. I... And I didn't know this, right? I had watched the American version of One Miss Call. I don't think I had ever watched the the, the Japanese version of One Miss Call, which is by Takashi Motherfucking Miike. Yeah, which I knew. 
I, I owned one missed call back in the day, and I remember it being. I, I legitimately remember thinking, "Oh, Takashi Miike, he just made some boring studio film. That's what this is. This is his studio picture." Just completely dismissing it in college because I'm stupid. Uh, yeah. And then when I put this on, I had forgotten all that, and it popped up the menu, and it was like, "Talk with Takashi Miike," and I, it blew my mind because I had just Look. completely forgotten all of that. Arrow put this out as a trilogy uh, of the three Japanese One Miss Call films. Uh, the original came out in 2003 by T- Mike, who is a legend and a genius. Most prolific filmmaker a lot of people in the history gave, of man. <laughs> a lot of people gave it criticism when it came out because it was clearly just sort of pulling off of what other films had done before, like Ringu and Dark Water and stuff of that sort of scary girl with long black hair type of thing. And yet, there's something about One Miss Call, Mike's specifically, that uh, the first one, that makes me go, do I like this more than Ringu? Oh, oh I, I... So, when going into this, I was kind of low-key dreading it, because um, when we did the Ring box set, the Ringu box set, you know, I, I really enjoyed the American movie. I had seen... Ringu once in college and was like, sure, mm-hmm. let's do this. And I ended up not really enjoying any of them. Like, they were okay, but the American one was so good. And so going into this, I was really hesitant, and I love the Mike movie. I like this so much better than Ring. Cause, and, and, okay. and I kind of hit on this yeah. while I was watching it. It's when Mikkei makes a studio picture that's actually kind of my favorite Mikkei because, you know, like, ordinarily when you watch his films, like, he does so many random stuff. He does a romantic comedy and then he'll turn he around does. and make, like, a artsy torture porn movie and then he'll turn and he'll make a samurai epic and then he'll make a weird, Gangster trippy, acid-fused TV show where there are people who cut people's heads <laughs> off and put flowers in their brains. Like, sure. what the fuck, Mike? But uh, whenever he makes a studio picture, you can see him constrained by that studio and, like, making a traditional narrative that's, that's not terribly out there and weird. But his outlandish sensibilities kind of slip through and the movies will randomly get really, um, like, really metaphorical with stuff that is very representational or the violence will just be suddenly over the top. And that's that's what One Missed Call is for me. It's a by-the-book Japanese horror film. You know, the the kid with the long black hair, everything. But the kills are awesomely gory, or awesomely I, violent, I should say. I would argue more more so than that. I mean, yes, the, the, they really do do that. And at first, this thing starts off, especially with, I mean, this, like I said, 2003, there's been a lot since then, even. So I'm going, okay, I expect this is probably going to be a little dull, but I'm going to try and look at it from the viewpoint of when it came out, but also remembering that people had done a lot of this stuff beforehand already. And finding this is the first film in this trilogy is still a pretty exciting goddamn movie. Yeah. Mike finds ways to make this very interesting. All right. So the premise, uh, why don't you do it? All, all right. right. So, What's the story? So, well, first of all, what I thought going into this was wrong. I was remembering Pulse because I swear to God this different was a movie, movie where the ghosts very use cell movie. phones to take over. It is not yeah. that. Um, in this movie, uh, instead of a videotape, you get a 
missed call with a unique phone, a unique ringtone that I, yes, did indeed make my ringtone in college. And yes, did indeed make my ringtone again now. Um, I was totally thinking about it. (laughs) No, I did it. It's there. Um, But so you get a call from this ringtone. You pick it up and you hear your last moments from the future. And it's always like a day and a half away. It's not a week or two weeks. It's like tomorrow or two days away. And you literally hear yourself die. And no matter what you do, when that time comes, you die. And uh, it ends up following the relatively tried and true J-horror pattern of you see a couple of people die and then we have our main character who is investigative and they get the call and they're looking into it and they're trying to track down the source of it and it very much becomes a race against time as they try to solve the mystery at the heart of whatever caused this ghost to come about before they get horribly murdered. Uh, And... Yeah, it goes, like you said, it gets pretty graphic at points. There's a lot of just stuff that Mike does as little effects. Like, there's this thing that, like, when they die, this big red ball of candy falls out of their mouth that there's he uses to great visual effect. Like, oh, that's super creepy, and he always, like, there's something about it. Like, this is a guy who understands cinematography in a way to make that distressing. Well, so there are two things Mickey did with this movie that I think set it apart from other J-horror movies. Uh, First is that a lot of the times when you watch movies like this, people die of, I'm going to call it fright. Like, they just kind of die. Uh, Their body shuts off. And that's the way it was the Ring movies, and that's the way it was, I want to say in the, no, no, the grudge, they tear their mouth off. But with Mickey, the ghosts come for you, and they... They kill you quite graphically. One girl gets tossed in front of a train. One guy gets pulled down an elevator shaft. There is this amazing sequence that is maybe the highlight of the genre where a news, uh, a tabloid show pulls someone who's supposed to die on camera and the ghost comes for them on camera. And it is a great sequence. And the other thing that Mike does, and, and I didn't realize this until I was like partway through the second movie, is that traditionally in movies like this, uh, the ghost was an innocent, misunderstood person who was ostracized by society, and they feel wronged, and it is their it's their vengeance striking out against society. That is not the case here. The ghost is a psychopathic killer who died horribly yes but it it almost would have been a good thing because this is somebody who was going to be murdering people in life and so instead of this oh let's let's heal the ghost's pain even when you do that it's still a psychopathic murderer who's just gonna kill you for fun and that is such a subtle difference but it makes all the world uh, and when you get into this, the story. It, Mike has enough like distance from the films that started this genre to do things you genuinely don't expect it to do to, in the third act with things like, oh, well, this is all about figuring out like what the history is and solving the mystery that way and not accounting for things like, but what if they're just fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and, 
Miku does a really good job of better so than any of the others in this genre of playing with that dread of the inevitable that moment where you're sitting there and you're gonna die in two minutes and you know you're gonna die in two minutes and the people around you know you're gonna die in two minutes and he'll just sit with it and watch the people go through those emotions go through that fear and desperation and horror and he does that better than any of the others i've seen like, it, so, there were some chilling sequences in this first movie. Uh, agreed. Now, the sequels are decidedly not as good. Yeah. But I don't think they're unwatchable. I, I think part three is better than part two, if only because it takes a sort of, uh, uh, what's the, what am I looking for? Lord of the Flies type Yeah. Thing, it, it, there's a hyper awareness from people at that point where everyone knows, everyone knows how this works. And if it happens... To them, they're like, oh, shit, fuck you. And they add this element of, like, you can forward your call to someone else, but, and then that person is definitely going to die. Yeah, they can't only get out once. of it. You can only forward it yeah. once. And yeah. you're right. that There is this, you know what? You pissed me off, so I'm going to forward it to you. And watching it's, the characters tear themselves apart was the best part of that movie. But, it should be better film than it is. And it is better than two, which I thought was kind of going through the motions. By the way, neither one of the sequels Mike is no. involved with I, at all. Two, uh, so two was passable. Its biggest problem is that it's slow. And in my opinion, there's not enough death. Which is interesting. I read a review that was talking about the bodies were dropping in part two, but like honestly, there's I think two deaths in the whole movie, and it's not a lot. Even then, they're lackluster. Like, like it, it it introduces a couple of interesting elements, which is that maybe the psychopathic ghost wasn't the start of it, and that was kind of an odd take. It didn't go where I expected it to go, but it was still I still enjoyed watching it. The story was interesting. Part yeah, I mean, three was kind of bug nuts crazy. The problem with part yeah. three is that the kills just weren't great. They were kind of lame. And, and, and I talk about the kills like I, I hit this. I hit upon this. This is Japan's slasher movie franchise. Like this is their equivalent to me to like Friday the Thirteenth, except it's a ghost instead of a zombie. Uh, and that's how I was watching the follow up movies uh, were slasher films. Uh, which, granted, that they don't necessarily live up to that as much as the character should be in that kind of a movie. But it, even though they aren't as good, I, I still think Part 2 and Part 3 were better than the sequels of the Ring movies. Like, All right. Like I, this is my favorite J-Core franchise, and it might be my pick of the week. Uh, okay. This set? Out of this list? Yeah. Really? No, no, it's probably going to go to The Quiet Place. Um, but and I know what mm. I know what yours is already. Uh, yeah. We'll get I there. You right. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, this is a worthwhile uh, buy for anyone who really enjoys J-Horror. Because uh, even at the lessening quality, the story was still interesting and they still did unique things in the sequels. I dug it's it. It's a surprisingly solid J-Horror trilogy that has been regularly relegated to the sort of like, oh, this was just a ripoff. I know. Because it came out much later than a, a lot of the rest of them. It's actually, on the whole, deeply watchable. Like I said, two is the weakest of the three. Three, because it tries something a little different, but also is kind of bug nuts crazy. 
is more watchable if for for that if nothing else i will say part of the problem with this is like there's a point even in two where you're and especially in three we're like how does this even relate to the original film anymore? oh it doesn't uh, and, like, I'm unclear. They keep trying to, and, well, and, like, and, and it gets conspiratorial. Like, maybe there's another Bizdolf spirit or whatever. I don't even know. The, the part like, it's three, very, you're not going to understand what's happening. Yeah, let me just say this. Part three does not make sense. Uh, there yeah. is a point where the person you think is the antagonist ends up being not the antagonist and actually kind yeah. of a, it, it just doesn't make sense. It does not make logical sense. It's okay you're watching Japanese kids get killed by a psychopathic ghost. That's what matters. Can I say there's an enormous amount of bonus material here? Yeah. Like, holy shit, they did an arrow as is their want, did not fuck around, including a slipcover and a really nice insert booklet. Uh, there's commentary on the uh, first movie. There is uh, the making of one missed call for an hour 33 minutes on the one missed call two and uh, almost at, uh, about 51, 52 minutes on a missed call three. Tons and tons of stuff. Cast and crew interviews, interview with Takashi Miike, uh, things, screening elements from uh, film festivals, uh, raw footage from the TV special in the film from two different angles, which you can use the angle button on your remote. Do you remember the last time you used that? Yeah, I don't. I don't. <laughs> in, um, in like 1999 when the first blu-ray came out in the, the first, first movie DVD there was a bunch out. of like there's a stuff that comes from a nanny cam you can watch the raw footage actually as that is there's an alternate ending uh of the first film uh there is a the second two films had short tie-in films that were released ahead of time that are both tie-in both come into about four minutes or so. And so those are both here. There's a lot of stuff. I'm not, I'm barely like coming. I'm sorry. What the, the, for uh miss call two, it's four minutes about the second one's about 12 minutes. You know, the third like, one arrow does good copy. And when they Doesn't fuck around, when they put together an actual set and it's not just like, Oh, this is a release. They don't fuck around on not fucking around. They always so, do for, good stuff. For this next one, we're going to have to go all the way back to the far-flung year of 1949 <laughs> for Manon. Uh, <laughs> Which, by the way, is super hard to find on IMDb because there's one other Manon movie. Yeah. And it's like from 88. Manon of the Spring. Yeah. Yeah. That one. Yeah. I saw it in a theater. <laughs> really <laughs> holy shit it's I, really good I, I was trying to figure out before i saw this if this was an arrow classic or uh horror because my no, first uh, thought was um nano's hands of fate uh and i was like oh okay no 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 the, the, this is the old school arrow arrow academy <laughs> okay so this is by Hon- henri george clouseau who is one of the all-time greatest french filmmakers he made uh, lead, lead Diabolique, which if you've never watched, is like the it's Alfred Hitchcock movie you never got to see. Yeah. Uh, like, and The Wages of Fear, and like, I mean, like, he's a, a genius. This movie is troublesome in multiple ways. Okay, good. I, I had issues with this movie. <laughs> yeah, I not the least of which is that... So, this story of th- that takes place during World War II, right... Of like a soldier who is uh, 
in France who is going to this bombed out town and discovers this ridiculously hot, and I mean that in the most specific and literal way I can, like a townsperson there who is being the whole town is like, no, 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 we get it. Like, it might as well be burner. She's well, a witch. It, 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 they're doing the thing. And this really did happen. Uh, it takes place right after the Nazis were driven out and the townspeople started rounding up all the women who slept with Nazis and they yeah. shaved their heads. And he was part of the group of soldiers. He's not even the one who speaks up, but he's part of the group of soldiers who goes, no, you're not going to do this. Um, and instead, his commanding officer gives her to him and says, look, you need to go s- stay with her here and you're going to keep an eye on her. We're not going to cut her hair off. We're going to give this girl a proper trial. And if she's done something bad, we're going to put her to death, throw her in jail, pick your poison. And while talking with this 18-year-old hottie, uh, which you're right, she is obscenely gorgeous, made me feel like a dirty old man. Yeah, in a weird sort of way, you're yeah. like, there's something about you that no one looks like you. I don't even yeah. know how to just, dis- yeah. Like, the, the actress is insanely charismatic right off the bat. But but she basically convinces him that she is an innocent and she was just, Cecile Aubrey. Cecile Aubrey, okay. But she was just, you know, living life, whatever. They came into her mother's coffee shop. And he feels a moment of, I guess, guilt or whatever you want to call it. And he hides her. And right off the bat, his commanding officer is like, okay, fine, you are, uh, you're discharged and you wait right here and then we're going to take you to court too. Uh, and so instead of, you know, going to jail, he escapes with her. And the intent is that they're going to go to be with his family and they're going to get married and have babies and yada, yada, yada. Well, she's an 18-year-old blonde bombshell and she really likes the nightlife of Paris and decides no I don't want to be a boring white picket fence lady I want to live the nightlife in Paris and the two of them go down increasingly more and more harrowing circumstances in order to try to maintain that life as he is ostracized by his family for not coming back she becomes a prostitute at one point and hides it from him. And, and basically the movie tracks this couple's inevitable demise is what this, that's what it is. And the problem I ended up having with it is about 15 minutes in, you go, you know what, lady, you don't need to be in this relationship. You need to be an 18 year old just enjoying yourself somewhere and Dude, you're kind of an asshole controlling freak. Kind of creepy, but you need but to then, find some lady who's some housewife and just enjoy life. You but know? then you go to like, holy shit, you are a really fucked up chick. No, they're like, yeah, she's fucked up. Like she's yeah, secretly being a prostitute. It's it's bad. I don't mean in a noir sort of way that like cleverly plays into the plot. I mean, she's a horrible, horrible person. Yes, like a bad bad person and you start going holy shit the townspeople were right she is just an opportunist piece of shit and then you start going wow this is one of the most misogynist films i've ever seen in my entire life oh yeah there was actually a point (laughs) so they introduced her brother halfway through and then about that same time she also starts 
being romantic with other men like American soldiers and pretending that this the other main character is her brother. And I spent like half the movie going, wait a minute, is that really her brother? Or has she just done this before? And that was the guy she seduced and then she moved on to this guy and now she's moving on to someone new and she just has a bunch of brothers out there. I thought the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a movie about terrible people being terrible to each other and ruining each other's lives until everything was just misery. And that unfortunately is really gorgeously shot. Yeah, it is. And there's some incredibly like well-made moments in it that I'm like, I wish I thought that either one of these characters was redeemable in any single way. And yeah. it's it's clear from things I've read that like after the fact and the, not my immediate response watching it, that Clouseau had other things in mind that he was trying to say. But let's face it, this adaptation of a novel from 1731, but moving it into the a later age, doesn't really sell overall. I don't think it sold, sold the things it was trying to then. I mean, there were certainly... There have been critics who have hailed this as a classic. There have been hailed critics who have hailed, said this was a major failure in Clouseau's career. It seems uncertain, but I will say that the worst is there's this strange third act decision for them to join a bunch of Jewish red refugees. Uh, like, Sorry, that third act. It's like, what is happening yeah, right it's now? So this fucking is weird. not cool that this is part of this story and it doesn't make any sense. I didn't care for this movie at all, other than the fact that there's no question it's beautifully shot, that there's no question that actress uh, Cecile Aubrey is kind of a discovery. She wasn't in a lot of films. Uh, Which is a shame, because she's good as a terrible human being. Well, she was 20 when this happened. Uh, She was in uh, Orson Welles's... Uh, or, or alongside Ty- Ty- Tyron Power and Orson Welles in a film called The Black Rose. She was in Bluebeard in 1952, which was a big hit. And then she quit and decided she was going to be a children's uh, storybook writer and had huge success. Good for huge. her. Huge. Good for her. The character, have you ever heard of the band Bell and Sebastian? I have. They are named after the TV show she created called Bell at Sebastian. Holy shit. Okay, that- I get to tell my wife about that. She's a huge fan of things. And like, like, honestly, this movie, I, I'm betting it had a lot more of an impact in 1949 when it was released. But the simple matter of fact is, is that was 70 years ago now. Yeah. And this movie has been done better now. Significantly better. This kind of story. And I, I get from a historical... And this happens occasionally with Aaron. You know, sometimes they make, they, they release movies that are really phenomenal and had a real impact and you can watch them and go, holy shit, I see why that was special. And other times they release movies and you're like, wow, I, I guess I'm glad that you're preserving this forgotten cinema, but man, it's, it's been done better. And this sure. isn't that special. And this is one of those. Well, let's talk about our next movie, Scandalous, the untold story of the National Enquirer. Man, the title alone grabbed me because I was like, yeah. I want to know the untold story of the National Enquirer. The, the, be, fun like, fact, this movie ended up making me feel like kind of a terrible human being. Why? So continue. I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> okay. So if you have ever stood in a line at a grocery store, which I assume every single person 
here has, unless you're super weirdly privileged, in which case I'm not sure what we would ever say that would, you would identify with. Uh, you've seen a copy of the National Enquirer. It, it was kind of the original rag. It's not, for the record. There have been many, many rags in other yeah. countries beforehand doing this sort of thing. Well, but dude, for America, it was the original sort of like, ooh, scandal rag. This is when journalism were. was for like a couple of hundred years, even. <laughs> and the National Enquirer has gone through many different phases of existence of like the type of thing that it was de- trying to do. But there's no question it's been a crazy fucking success and surprisingly this documentary uh is goes into the ways in which it literally changed journalism yeah and legitimately changed journalism which is super fucking surprising to know about there's stuff here that will make you go no shit i did not know that well Uh, yeah uh it's it really surprised me how, for a chunk of time, the National Enquirer, the National Enquirer was a semi-legitimate news article or a news yeah. source. Like that blew me away. Um, and the what what this does, so it goes back and it tracks it starting from the very beginning when it was first started up as literally a crime and accident mag where it would be pictures of dead bodies that were in car accidents or murders that were done, that whole it bleeds, it leads kind of thing, which I'll admit, I could have done without some of those photos of legitimately, honest-to-God, dead people on my screen in my life. Like, that was not something I needed right then and there. Um, and Such a snowflake. It, 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 <laughs> it follows it from there into the era where it became an honest-to-God powerhouse in American journalism, and they were cracking real, legit stories, and then from there into what I will call the Bat-Boy phase, and then from there into what I will call... That's Weekly World News. Oh, sorry. Same stuff. That was not inquiry. Fair enough. But but into the more outlandish phase, and then even into now where it's basically pro-Trump. Um, well, I, what I think is interesting is the way that it sets up a modern era of journalism, which a lot of people, believe, despite disdain early on, ended up copying a lot of the processes that they did, which included like getting arrangements celebrity with celebrities to not release stories on them because they would get regular interviews with them. This was a thing they had with like Bill Cosby and Bob Hope. They would cover up their bad behavior. Exactly. To be able to say, oh, no, but we have an exclusive relationship with you. It's blackmail, basically. Well, there was a thing that was happening. It's a catch and kill, which is what they call it, which is just to talk about a modern day example. It's what they did with a lot of the women that Donald Trump slept with. You know, they they bought the rights to the stories and then never published them because they wanted him to be president. Now, the part that makes me feel like a terrible human being is when you get into that section where the National Enquirer is fighting for legitimacy to be a legitimate news rag. uh, They they do a good job of interviewing a lot of the reporters and the editors who were there for a long period of time. And they... They justifiably argue for the National Enquirer's existence, both in the kind of stories they tell and the way they tell their stories. And I agree with them. 
Like, I was watching them talk about it, and I was like, oh, shit, man, you're right. You have a point. Damn it. (laughs) I mean, there's something to be said as well for the the part that they brought in where it was like, nobody is doing enough homework here. Intensive homework with big stories. Like, they're the ones who discovered who gave John Belushi the overdose. Yep. They're the ones who figured out a lot of the stuff during the OJ trial. Like, it was a big fucking deal, the amount, like, where they were being saluted by major news organizations. Like, hey, uh, I got to hand it to y'all. Y'all did the work, and you came up with these stories. That's weird. But it's not the paper it was anymore. It got took over by, like, far-right wingers, and now it's just garbage. Yeah, now it is... Garbage that helped get our president elected. <laughs> and this covers all of their history while still being putting in the forefront how important it is this to understand how the news works with this sort of thing that appeals to the more common person that gets that that in their uh, supermarket checkout lane. How how pertinent that is. The thing that uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, figured out with Fox News doing the exact same thing on television, the idea that you can sell people on anything as long as you make it clear that you're not like those other pretentious assholes. Yeah. And And it's an interesting story. And let's be honest, this movie does even attempt to be um, uh, <laughs> fair and balanced, um, but no. that's okay it because it's the National Enquirer. Neither are they. It's fitting, and, and like it doesn't lie. It's just it's very much a look. This news organization has now become something that it should be ashamed of, and this is the story of how it got there. I still strongly recommend that anybody who's trying to parse how news works watches Scandalous, The Untold Story of the National Enquirer. I thought it was quite good. I agree. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I I do throw it out there just as a fair warning. The first 20 minutes, 10 minutes or so, there's a lot of dead bodies on screen. They're real. It's gory. Just be prepared. It, It did make me feel icky. Well, let's move into decidedly not a documentary and weirdly a film that Aaron messaged me going, I really kind of love this. And I was like, I fucking loved this movie. Uh, (laughs) 1988's Vibes. This is not the first time I've reviewed this movie. I reviewed it back on uh, uh, when we were on Spill on Remote Viewing. They put out a DVD then. Now this is a Blu-ray coming out of this uh, from Mill Creek Entertainment in their weird VHS slipped out cover retro collection which means it's super cheap which is the only way this movie should be sold agree uh agree uh it's directed by ken Quapis, who has you know i mean done a variety of different types of films he did sesame street presents follow that bird sisterhood of the traveling <laughs> really i did not have that yeah yeah and, and uh, by the way dunston checks checks in um here we go with his movie Vibes, which just by, I, I guarantee you, a lot of you guys, just by us describing what this movie is, you're going to go, I'm going to see it. I don't care what you say yeah, about it. Yeah. Okay. First so, of all, Chris has officially buried the lead because who gives a shit about Ken Quapis? Uh, this movie is starring <laughs> Jeff fucking Goldblum and the highlight of, or the, 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 the true like high watermark of Jeff Goldblum era. And Cindy Lauper, of all people, as a rom- as a romantic 
action adventure team up. Yeah. Like imagine romancing the stone if it starred these two people. And every single bad B movie, hey, that guy you've ever seen. Peter Falk is in it. Steve Buscemi is in it. Uh, Julian Sands. Yeah, the the the, the warlock Elizabeth or the, the doctor from Arachnophobia is in it. Like just Steve Buscemi briefly. Oh my god, the cast in this movie, and like I, I can't really. If you if you sit here and just tell, tell me the story that you hated this movie, I, I can't defend it. This feels like um, uh, Hudson Hawk. Where like yeah, yeah, I know it has problems, but I don't care. I love it. <laughs> Look, you you have a minute to describe the plot. I'm gonna go get another beer. Okay, fine. You do that. Okay, so uh, the movie basically follows a set of people with psychic abilities. Jeff Goldblum, if he touches anything, he immediately knows the history of everything about it. And Cindy Lauper, who she had a near death experience, and she has a spiritual companion who can tell her the future and allows her to actual travel. And so the two of them meet in a study for psychic people and hit it off and become friends. And first and foremost, what makes this movie special is that at no point in the entire running time of this movie does anyone ever question the veracity of psychic powers. It is assumed that these people are psychic. That's just the way of the world. So, Jeff Goldblum, he hates his life. He realizes his girlfriend is cheating on him. Uh, meanwhile, he runs into Columbo, of all people, who Beautiful. comes and says, Hey, I need your help. Uh, I need to find my son, and I'll pay you. Please come to South America with me. Uh, and he and Cindy Lauper go on this rip-roaring archaeological adventure to South America, where people from the psychic study are there and then people start trying to kill them. There's conspiracies and betrayals and it's ridiculously to, bad. It links to a psychic power source that will let you affect the world. And just it, this movie is bad, but it's amazing. It's bad. It's so good. It's not good. <laughs> And Jeff Goldblum is like pure Jeff Goldblum. This is Jeff Goldblum and Earth Girls Are Easy Jeff Goldblum or no, Transylvania 65,000. Which neither one of those are good movies. And yet for the record. they are. <laughs> uh, okay, I get it. Like I watch vibes and I'm like, I'm not bored. I'm not hating it. But this is not a good movie it's by not. any stretch of the imagination. I mean, like, it's not even like a good, a bad movie that transcends for me personally. I just to that being part. good, but it is one of those like, ah, fuck, what the hell? I'm stoned. I'll watch it. Type of movies. Like, it's it's a weird movie, but it's never as weird as it should be. Like, it always it it has that veneer of. Hollywood attempt to do something that they think is going to be cooler than it is that has is completely devoid of cool creative art people having input to it that is just kind of gross. I'm like, okay, like these this is Hollywood like professionals trying to figure out how to make something wacky and creative and it fails miserably repeatedly. But that's kind of part of the appeal, I think, is that it fails so incredibly badly on that level. I mean, for Hudson Hawk as well, I would say the same thing. That one just in particular appealed to me more because I think Bruce Willis is more appealing than Jeff Goldblum. Oh, at least in that period of his career. Oh, Chris. 
Yeah. Sorry. Oh, that, that hurts. Like, I'm sorry. So the, the thing that I liked is like, everybody has this dry sense of humor. In fact, like I, I will not at all deny the fact that whoever wrote the script is, is not great because everyone has the exact same voice. They all feel like they're either Jeff Goldblum or they're playing Jeff Goldblum. Uh, they keep trying to make dry observational humor. And like it, it, it just kind of worked for me. Okay, so for the record, it's written by Bobaloo Mandel and his longtime uh, oh. screenwriting partner who wrote Splash, Parenthood, City Slickers, and A League of Their Own. Holy four shit. really amazing fucking comedies, right? Wow. They've also written a lot of shit. But, <laughs> but they've written some great other great stuff. They wrote Spies Like Us. They wrote Gung Ho. They wrote Night Shift. Um, Mr. Saturday Night, uh, 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 Ed TV, which is deeply underrated. Like, the here's the thing. Like, I, I like I said, I, I can't justifiably argue this movie. You're right. It's bad. But I, I think that if you're the kind of person who enjoys Earth Girls Are Easy, or if you're the kind of person who enjoys Transylvania 65,000, which I do, I watched that a lot as a kid. I would have watched the fuck out of this as a kid if I knew it existed. Cindy Lauper is not a great actress, but her character sells. Like, she's consistent throughout, at least. Uh, and She found, finds a way to make it kind of fun. She does. No question. And, and Jeff Goldblum works in this. Like, the, the movie is just stupid, silly fun. I, I kind of loved this movie. This is wow. going to be one of the ones that, like, I rewatched down the line. <laughs> It's it's such a dumb movie that I would almost want to see the two of them team up together again. You know, what? in a sequel that is all super meta about how bad this movie was and how ridiculous it was what happens and they come up with some sort of plot where like no none of that could have been real, right? None of that could have actually happened. Yeah, you know I'll I'll agree. That would be good. And, and this is the last thing I'll say about the movie and I think it's why I ended up really having a good time with it is because yeah. There is not one moment in this movie's entire two or so hour runtime, hour and a half, whatever it is, where anybody even comes close to doubting the existence of psychic powers. Everybody who has these psychic powers, and there's a lot of different ones on display in this movie, they have those abilities. Everyone, when they tell them they have those abilities, just goes, oh, yeah, cool, sure. Of course, when you touch this, you know everything about it. Hey, Bob, come give him your watch. Let's find out where it was made. You know, and so like, there's a lot of humor that they get out of that that I really liked. And, and I just, I end up kind of being, I'm endeared towards any movie that just says, you know what, fuck it. We're going to go for it. And this is some weird shit. And just, just, just bear with us, please. Everyone's psychic and everyone's okay with it. <laughs> so after reviewing a movie that literally no one remembers, let's review a movie that is a sequel to one of the most popular films of the last decade, which still kind of baffles me, although I think it's a really good movie. I'm still confused why Frozen was so built up you know as being as big as it was. I'm not going to lie. Films. I watched Frozen 1 before I had kids and I liked it. And I rewatched I, no. it even. I really like Frozen. I just don't think it's even close to, like, the best film they put out this decade. You know what I mean? I agree. Where I was like, really? Because I would have put, like, uh, Tangled way over Frozen any day of the week uh, for a better Disney film. So I think here's what Frozen does that a lot of other Disney movies didn't. Um, one is that... It, it emphasized the idea that this is a family, these are sisters, 
and it built a believable familiar relationship out of them that a, a lot of animation really doesn't do and it also went non-traditional with a narrative like frozen one doesn't really have a bad guy like there's an antagonist in that romantic no, character no but but not really he's He's an incidental B-plot villain. He's not the main villain. And Frozen yeah. 2 doubles down Same on that. Same thing. There is no villain in this movie. The only yeah. villain that exists died before Frozen 1. Right. You know? and it's kind of a surprise. All right, so what's the, I've, I've already reviewed this one on Highly Suspect Reviews. So let's hear your short synopsis and your review. All right, so this takes place shortly after, or a few a time period after Frozen 1. Everyone's moved on. Um, everyone's happy. Anna is very much enamored with the fact that her life is perfect and will never change. Elsa is comfortable and is terrified of the ever-changing movement of the winds. Olaf is filled with existential dread. And Hans <laughs> is going to marry Anna or wants to but hasn't gotten the balls to ask her yet. And so shortly into the movie, we start seen Anna, not Anna, Elsa, I'm going to remember the character names, I swear. Yeah. I remember starting to sense something's coming, and then all of a sudden shit goes crazy in the town. Um, the, the, The ground literally starts boiling, the lanterns all explode, and everybody has to leave, and they find out that it has something to do with this enchanted forest that their father went to when he was a child and went through a traumatic experience and no one's been there since. And so the main characters all set off on this adventure to the enchanted forest to find out what's actually causing all this to happen to the Arendelle and what's driving everyone out so they can fix it. And it it ends up being, so, so actually let me back up. So there's two stories to this. There's Elsa, who, as opposed to last time, doesn't really change a lot over the course of the movie. Uh, Her story is very much like this external conflict. She's trying to find what's making this sound and trying to solve this problem. But she is who she is. And then every other character in the movie is going through deep existential dread of growing older. And... Basically, those two plots march forward until inevitably we find out uh, a lot more about what's happened before with their family and also why Elsa even has her powers. And like, I kind of danced around the plot because I don't really want to get in too much into what happens once they get into the Enchanted Forest because that is spoiler territory. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff with elemental spirits of earth, fire, and water that's really interesting. Um, I actually far prefer Frozen 2 to Frozen 1. I do too! Um, Thank you. So, like, I, I, I mean, I, I, not a huge, huge fan of either one in terms of, like, all-time classic Disney films, but they're both really solid films, and... Two is just a little bit weirder and more fun. Well, here's what it is for me is that, like, like, yes, Elsa's is the A story. You know, she's trying to solve what happened to Arendelle. She is the key player. Her powers are the key to it. But, like I said, she 
doesn't go through a whole lot of an arc in the movie. But what I really ended up getting into was all the B characters. Olaf is just like deep, deep into this what is even the meaning of life? We are all here for a fleeting moment. Existential dread and watching him go through that and evolve is really interesting. And well, he is a snowman. And, and, so. and, and even watching <laughs> Hans look at his relationship and try to figure out who he is, if not that person who follows Anna around. And then Anna looking at who she is if she's not her sister's sister, like what, what is her purpose? You know? And that's what all the side characters are trying. All the non Elsa characters are trying to find in this is their purpose. And it's interesting. I, I have a lot of coworkers who have kids and friends. Cause I, I'm at that point. And since I have kids, that's the circle I travel in. And mm-hmm. a lot of people complained about how this movie was okay. And the songs weren't as good. I get that they aren't as catchy, but oh my god, do I prefer the music to this movie? Like, oh, I do too. Like, it's it's not yeah. poppy. It's not catchy. There's not as many hooks as the first one, but it's they're more fun. It's deeper. The the, the music has more impact. It's all about well, uh, it's, it's it, the the music scenes more play integrate into what they're doing in the actual film, and that's what makes it memorable. Yeah, it, well, it's not that they're like pop catchy. They're more like oh, this has more to do with the plot. Uh, then they do seem like generic, let's try and get a single out of this type of thing, you know, and, and, or a memorable song. Like the one with the, oh my God, the 80s music video song <laughs> is the best thing yes, ever. You're right. The, the, the 80s music video song is is just magnifique. And then Anna's final song, which is all about uh, the idea that if you look at the big picture and you try to do everything at once, you're going to get overwhelmed, so instead, just just focus on the next step. And if you can get that next step, then what's the next step after that? Like, I, I have found that disturbingly inspirational and motivating in this fucked up, weird as shit, modern world we live in where everything is crumbling. Like, yeah. I, I have gotten a lot of emotional inspiration from the music of Frozen 2, is what I'm saying. And, and, and like, this doubles down on not having a villain. Hans does a good job of being a side character who plays the action-y kind of guy, but he doesn't ever take over and do action hero kind of things. Like, he always is like, no, I want to help. How can I help instead of let me take over? Like, this is a good movie, basically. Check it out. I generally agree I think if you were disdaining this because some critics saying it's not as good as the first one, you're like, ah, I didn't even like the first one that much. If you didn't like the first one as much as everyone else went crazy over it, you actually might like this one better, it, as I did it, and you did. It's uh, weird. I, I think the first one is a better kids' film. I think this is a better film. Like, like, like this I is just agree. something I still, that I think I, adults would get more out of than they did the first I still week. think that it kind of third acts, like, shrugs its way through it. Like, you know, whatever. Oh, oh it does. But, There's this uh, major turn in the movie that I'm not going to spoil that I metaphorically get what everything represents. And, like, I get I, I get what what they want us to feel. But from a purely plot standpoint, I've now seen this movie three times. I don't actually understand what happens. 
So there's an enormous amount of bonus features that comes out with anything that Disney puts out here. I really liked the outtakes this time, which usually these are boring, but it was fun because Kristen Bell is always fun with that stuff. There's a lot of dumb stuff for kids here. Like, did you know? Okay, whatever. Um, There are two deleted songs, which is rare to have entirely deleted songs, but they're included their entirety here. And then music videos, including Lost in the Woods, where Weezer does a version of it on here, which is kind of cool. This is a decent little set, and I liked it. But my pick of the week, and I think you knew what it was, is going to be Three Fantastic Journeys (laughs) by Carol Zeman on Criterion. Uh, I had never heard of this fucking guy. Me neither. Like, I was like, all right, so who is this person? So I have so not heard of this that when people started showing pictures on Twitter of this set and they were talking about one of his movies, which is the fabulous Baron Baron Munchausen, I thought Mm -hmm. they had re-released the Terry Gilliam movie. Ah, No, I wish they would, too. I love that movie as well. But, all right, so here's the story. First, before we get into the the release by Criterion for for this film, which is unquestionably the pick of the week, Aaron. I disagree, but cool. We'll go. (laughs) Uh, He was often called the the Czechoslovakian malaise, which is to say uh, 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 the famous malaise who did A Trip to the Moon, The Impossible Voyage, you know, the one... You, if you know nothing else, you know that image of the moon with like a bullet in its eye type thing. Uh, if you saw the movie Hugo, that was about him. All right. So here's the deal. Many, many years later, but not that many years later. Hey, dude, I mean, the, dude, we're in like the 50s and 60s. So they, yeah. they're a lot more recent than you expect when you actually watch the films. Sure. Uh, but, you know, we're in Czechoslovakia. And this guy who wanted to figure out a way to mix together live action and animation techniques into one. And honestly... I've never seen anything like the stuff this guy was doing. Agreed. Uh, it was, it's still, you watch these three films. The first one, you can kind of figure out how he did it. The second two, you're like, there are po- lots of points. I'm like, I feel like I, I know how he did it. And then you're like, holy shit, those characters just walked into that. And I thought that that was like just a backdrop. I like no idea how he just did that. Fascinating guy who went on to influence major like uh, filmmakers along the way, like uh, Tim Burton and Wes Anderson, Terry Gilliam, Terry Gilliam, <laughs> who like I couldn't have, I would, I may not have even become a filmmaker without this guy, you know, type of thing. I never even heard of this fucking dude. <laughs> you know, I'm like, who is he? So Criterion puts out this set with three of his films, which I'm not sure these are the three films that are decidedly the definitive films to pick from him, but they certainly represent different aspects of his career. Uh, and they're all enjoyable to watch to one degree or another, especially if you're very interested in the history of animation and film. Uh, the set itself is a fold-out triptych package that is a pop-up, and I believe maybe the only pop-up Criterion has ever done. Literally, stuff folds up out of it, and it's like, oh my god, that's so you fucking know, cool. I, I will tell you this. I, I don't agree that these are the best movies that came out this cycle, but I will say that this actual disc set is one of the most beautiful sets that has ever been released. Like, oh, it's it is gorgeous. Perfect. Yeah. 
I mean, they nailed this. So the three films in here, the first one is his debut feature, Journey to the Beginning of Time. And this is, to be fair, after he did a whole series of like many, many, many short animated films and some short live action films. Like he had been working in the scene for quite some time in Czechoslovakia and had been even won awards for what he was doing. So this idea was uh, during a period of time politically where you had to prove that you were doing uh, educational films to even get something financed or be allowed to release it in 1955. So he, uh, you know, communist rule. And uh, this one was the idea these kids in no real explainable way, basically get on a boat and find a way to generally travel down this river that takes them through the history of time as goes through specifically dinosaurs uh, through each period. Yeah. And the film is obviously intended to be an educational film. When you watch it, you go, oh, there's some stuff here you can see. Even in 1955, you're like, this is pretty impressive what they were doing with special, with like low budget special effects, but this guy coming up with ways to do things using perspective uh, that were pretty impressive. Oh. It's not an exciting so film. It, it's, it is a, consider this a documentary about the different prehistoric life that has existed on our planet with a light narrative flair to it. But like the technical achievement part of this cannot be overstated. There's even a sequence where they see a saber toothed tiger in a tree. And I had to rewind it three times because I wanted to see how they did it. Or there's a Brachiosaurus on a riverbed, and they fucking built a Brachiosaurus uh, just to have it there, and were manipulating its head with wires. Like, this movie is a technical achievement, and if you at all appreciate how film is made, you ought to watch this just to go like, holy shit, that's how you did that? Okay, wow. Yeah. Uh, so the next one is 1958's based on a Jules Verne novel, Invention uh, for Destruction, which is, I think, the best of the three here visually, personally. Uh, I would agree I with really, that. Yeah, I, I found this kind of amazing to watch, which is a uh, very corrupt European nobleman who uses a stolen submarine uh, to basically do raids underwater on in this other very Vernian type universe, uh, industrial, almost sort of steampunk ish type of thing way before it's time. Uh, this is one of those movies that one of those things that it's constantly surprising you with things that, like I mentioned earlier, that look like a matte painting in the background. And then suddenly they walk through and you're like, how the fuck did they do that? Like everything is crafted in a way that reminds me of uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the, the old German expression, uh, existentialist uh, expressionist film. Yeah, expressionist. Like w- huge painted sets, everything being kind of like off kilter. I mean, they're not doing really the off kilter here. It's more like what where you can see where Wes Anderson gets it from, like this ultimate symmetry and beauty yeah. of the way it's designed and intricacy. But it's he does this amazing job of being not clear where the art like painted created art stops and the, where the actors 
you know, where they can go. Cool. It's very confusing and kind of fascinating to watch it play out. And it's very beautiful. Well, and what they've done is they've essentially designed all of the sets to look like insanely stylized animation. And they combine those super stylized sets with actually doing matte paintings and only filming like they'll film the actors but they'll only take up you know one tenth of the screen and the rest of the screen is animation and there's so much interweaving between animation and live action that it gets to a point where like you said you never really know 100 percent what's animation and what's real and, yeah. and so the the problem that i get to with this set and it's why as much we as to the last sorry film yet, sorry continue though. continue sorry. Sorry, last film. Then you can go on your problems, which okay. I'm sure are all false. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I'm kidding. 1962's The Fabulous Baron Munchausen. I, my first introduction to Baron Munchausen was Gilliam's film. Same here. I loved the shit out of that film. It was my type of surreal craziness. This is a surreal crazy thing. I mean, when you get start getting into Baron Munchausen, like, I, it literally, it's a huge wiki hole if you choose to get into this. It was like a fictional German nobleman created by a German writer in 1785 that continued on with multiple other stories, multiple other people taking on this character, people arguing he was a real person, people saying, no, of course he wasn't a person with these fantastical experiences. The idea was it was kind of like this guy digging on a dickhead politician he knew used to lie a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Is what really literally where this came from. But this movie, which is so far after that, of course, 1962, 1785, is the idea of holding up that idea of like, oh, but what if there was this guy the same way Terry Gilliam did, who had this fantastical existence? And it's its, it's biggest problem well, is that it, its biggest problem is that it, for me, was that it has like, it chooses to colorize the tones of uh, different scenes in a way that's kind of distracting in a way I didn't enjoy as much. I found myself pulled out of it because it was like, so distinctly, this scene is yellow. This scene is blue. The scene is red. I found not as fun as uh, the previous film, which was just black and white. I was like, eh, I don't really, this is not as fun. It's a little racist, of course, as well. Uh, But you know, such as the time it's still using all those cinematic innovations that are absolutely amazing. And believe me, if you're into this sort of stuff, you're going to be blown fucking away by what this movie did. There's stuff in here and in the in the previous film that will still make you go like, I have no idea how they even did that. Uh, I agree. Uh, From a technical level, all three, actually all three of the movies, even the first one, there were several scenes that I watched and had to rewind and watch again and again to try and figure out how they did. Although, um, uh, interesting little tidbit, I swear to God, uh, the journey to the beginning of time has one of my favorite stunts that I've seen this year where a kid falls into a mud pit and, you know, it's the 50s. They just do it. And so this kid takes like a 15-foot tumble into this mud pit and they just he just eats it hardcore on screen and that kind of blew me away they did that but it really and this is my problem with the movie and i swear to god it holds water 
Um, <laughs> but these movies are technical marvels. I cannot argue that. Watching this movie, every single frame, you're going, I, I can't tell what's real, what's not. That's gorgeous. You can you can see viscerally that this has inspired a lot of what we take for granted today. The problem I had was that that was as far as it went for me. Uh, the narratives themselves were okay, and all three of these movies, by the end, I was I was getting bored, and I was losing interest. And the only thing holding me was, how did they do that? Now, how did they do this? And I was watching it as somebody who went to, like, film school and college, going, all right, I want to know technically, like, where they put the camera, what's real, what's not, that's a matte painting, that is animation, and they shot this on a plate and laid the animation over. That's how I was watching this movie. At no point was I into the story, and in all three of them, by the end, I was like, okay, I'm kind of ready for this to be over because I don't care about the story. And okay, so that's I, my problem I, with the set. I don't entirely disagree with you to some extent. I mean, I was still enjoying the stories as it were, uh, but these are not films about how good the stories are. These are, this is like finding a hidden gem of the history of film you never knew about that like changes everything. You know, you're like, wow, holy crap. I had no idea this guy exists or these film exists existed and really kind of changes the way you think about the way things happened in movies. Or how about just, I had no idea you could make movies like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, These are unique. to, To me, this set is, if you're in film school, if you want to be a filmmaker, if you're into animation, especially if you're into animation, you need to watch these. Uh, they will change how you work. Uh, so adding to that, above and beyond the incredible actual physical set that they put together here, which are maybe the best thing Criterion has ever done, uh, there is a shit ton of bonus features here that go through every possible detail of this guy's life. There's a museum dedicated to him in, in I believe, Prague. Uh and they allowed them to have all the videos that they show in that museum that are here on the set. You can watch for all these details from here. The 101 minute documentary of the history of this guy is on here. There's interviews with Tim Burton and other people talking about how much they were influenced by him. I mean, this is a really wildly impressive Criterion set that is not going to be for everyone, certainly. But in terms of if you are a film student on any level i feel like this is kind of an essential part of your education agreed and it's so well exhaustively put together that i can't not give this you know what fuck it okay so here's the thing every time we do pick of the week i find myself wanting to give it to what i feel is actually the best film uh, or the one that like impacted me the most when really uh, it should be what is the actual best release. Sure. And while I myself, like I, I admit I grew bored with all three of these movies and actually kind of stuck with the first one longer than any of them. Um, I'll agree that this is by far the best set that came out in this cycle and, and purely on the design, the aesthetic, and 
how technically marvelous this everything in here is. Yeah, sure. This is pick of the week. Oh my god, did I just win? Yeah, you won. I, I, I still think that please God go watch the one miss call series. It's so much better than you think. <laughs> it's what I had the most fun with, but this is unequivocally the best set to come out. Audience, you decide which should be the pick of the week. We know. We know. It's fine. It's okay. It's what uh, this call. We know it. That's that's it for this first ever uh, across the internet's digital noise. I thought it turned out okay. Yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, digital noise in isolation. That's what we do. Yeah. I think I... What, Jesus, your cat is. Are you strangling your cat? No, that was me picking her up because she was crawling on my keyboard. So, yeah. It sounds like you're strangling. <laughs> no, I'm not strangling her. She's right there. She's okay. She just is loud and vocal and angry. Aaron Woodle cat murder. Fuck off, Chris. Don't do- <laughs> That's what you're going to title the episode, isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs>